Good morning, friends. This is a recording for Sunday morning, November 1st, 2020. Part two of our teaching out of Romans 8 on the wonderful doctrine of adoption. I'm going to do the screen share and call up the handout for you. Hopefully you have a uh, copy of your, from the webpage. Here we go. Make myself smaller. And I'll read the text and we're going to scroll to page four and pick up where we left off last time. So Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we pray you take your word and use it to inflame our minds with truth, bring us light, our hearts, hope, confidence, uh, may we be filled with the love of the Father and see our beloved, precious Jesus, our older brother, more clearly by your spirit, the very spirit of adoption. Come and have make your word have its place in our hearts to do its good work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to scroll down through page one, two, three, and we're going to pick up here on page four. Hopefully I remember to scroll as we teach through. <clears throat> and we are picking up at number seven. Some observations about this wonderful doctrine. Number seven, it tells us of new liberty and intimacy with God in the spirit. And this is coming from verse 15 of chapter eight. We cry out, Abba, Father. You may recall that the word Abba is Aramaic, not Greek, for daddy. What could be more intimate than calling God daddy? He is our father. He is our daddy. Uh, why do we call this new liberty and intimacy in the spirit? It is freedom in prayer, freedom in relationship, intimacy in the way we approach God. So the idea is because God is our father, we have access to him. We have confidence in prayer. Uh, we, have, uh, we have this person to talk with about anything. And even though your experience with your earthly father may not have been stellar or the best, we sort of know in our heart of hearts what, a, what our relationship with our father should be. And if it wasn't what we wanted it to be or what it should have been, we know by contrast how glorious our Heavenly Father is to us as Father. It doesn't mean there might not be a lot of work in your sanctification to, to bring you to the place. No, that was my experience. Bring me to the place of understanding more deeply God as Father. The one Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray, Matthew 6, say, Our Father, you who are in heaven, he is our holy, heavenly Father. We have this access to the very throne of grace. I, I love that verse in Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. There's the idea. Because we have the spirit, we have intimacy with God, 
we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, the very place Jesus and his Father reign and rule over all things, the throne of grace, where we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is our merciful Father, right sitting right at his right hand. Jesus is the source of that mercy. God can never forget, as it were, to show you mercy because Jesus is right there, the one who has purchased all of your grace, all of your forgiveness, all of the kindness you receive from God, all of the non-judgment but mercy. It's right there, all in Jesus. Jesus is our advocate, pleading with us before the Father. Father, look upon them because of what I have done. Jesus isn't pleading your performance. He isn't pleading how good you, you are. He's pleading himself. All this means we have intimacy. We draw near to the throne of grace, where we're promised to find grace to help in time of need. You hear echoed in that uh, Jesus teaching, which father among you, if the son asks him for a fish, he's not going to give him a serpent. If he asks for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give him a stone because God is good. God knows what we need. God loves to meet our needs. God hears our prayers. God answers our prayers. We have this access and this confidence in prayer. We cry out, Abba, Father. We talk to him about everything. And this is what you see in the Psalms. The Psalms are prayers. They are expressing the thoughts, the reflections, the cries, and very lots of different scenarios crying out to God. And uh, so we make the Psalms our prayers to our Heavenly Father. So there's a new liberty and intimacy in the Spirit. Eight, a new inheritance. Paul goes on, and if you're children, then guess what? By definition, by extension, by logic, if you're children of God, you're heirs of God. Fellow heirs with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So what awaits us in glory is everything that belongs to Jesus will correspondingly belong to us. We will inherit the nations. We will inherit the new earth. Everything belongs to us. And we're promised in Revelation, we will reign with Christ because we're fellow heirs with Christ. This is what we look forward to, reigning with Christ. In a sense, that reign has already begun because we've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And so it is our privilege as Christians by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of Christ to bring the reality of his reign, his invisible reign, into this earth, into the places we live and work and have our homes. We want the reign of Christ to be manifested through our prayers, through our words, through our actions. A new inheritance, a new calling, and that is the calling to suffer. It's verse 18. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. You see in that the two aspects of Christ's ministry, his sufferings and his glory, his death and resurrection, We'll talk about this in detail in a subsequent week. New calling, which is to suffer with him, which uh, is our glide path to being glorified with him. Same pattern of Jesus. So let's ask the question now, how does God adopt us? And to answer it, we're going to go to Paul's other very specific treatment of this doctrine in Galatians 4, verse 4. Paul writes for us, and the answer to how he adopts us is he redeems us. Paul writes Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, there it is, Abba, 
father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You So Galatians is written prior to writing of Romans. And you see how Paul has taken the almost the exact same concepts in the Romans passage and just restated them in, with slightly different words. All the concepts seem present. What's new in this passage, what's different here, is the way he adopts us, and that is by redeeming us. So Paul says the mission of God in Christ, what was God doing in his son? God was adopting sons and daughters. And there was a price to be paid. And the price, of course, to adopt you is the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus the Son. Paul uses a technical term, redeem. This was a term used in the Agora, the marketplace in the ancient world. And uh, people who were in slavery were lined up across a, a platform. And if you wanted to set one free and pay the price for it, and you would redeem it. That's the technical term here. What has Christ redeemed us from what slavery? Well, we were slaves to Satan. We were slaves to sin, slaves to the world, slaves to the law as a taskmaster. We owed the law perfect obedience. By virtue of being human, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be fully human, you must keep the law of God perfectly. And in that sense, it's a taskmaster demanding you do this, demanding you don't do this. We have been redeemed by Jesus. How? Well, Jesus was born to earn that perfect obedience for us. Paul says he's born of a woman, translated Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, assumed a human personhood. He's a man to represent us, men and women, to represent us as a human being. And he's born under the law to keep the law of God perfectly for us. So you hear in born under the law, uh, the, the echoes of Adam created born to obey God perfectly. He was given the covenant of works. Don't eat of this tree and you can stay here forever. He failed. Jesus Christ has come as the second Adam to succeed because the first Adam failed. Paul makes these contrasts for us in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus has come to redeem us from the condemnation of our law-breaking. How did he do that? He became fatherless on the cross, becoming sin for us, cut off from life, cut off from his father. Remember those words on the cross, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is virtually, virtually the only time in his, that, we've, uh, that we have recorded for us in the spoken ministry that Jesus calls his father God. He was facing his father as God, the righteous judge. He was being judged by his father, by God, for our sins. And in this, God is forsaking him because he is becoming a blob of sin on the cross, the father turning his face away so that, uh, so that Christ would be the one completely removing the guilt of our sins. And the purpose of this, Paul is clear, is so that, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is a gift, it's received, it's not earned, it's not deserved. This is a gift of God's grace. Paul then tells us that he sends the spirit of sonship to us, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The same spirit in Jesus, Jesus endowed with the Holy Spirit. As Jesus prays to his father, he prays, Abba, Father. That same spirit is in us, crying out, 
with the same words, the same level of intimacy. So we'll go back to then to the Romans 8 and see where Paul wrote that in Romans 8, 15 to 16. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We saw last week, this is the dual witness, the double witness of this, uh, uh, that we belong to the Lord. This assurance, this, this double cry. The Holy Spirit tells us, God, your father, God, your father, because of what Jesus did. The Holy Spirit is saying, God, your Father, you're children of the living God. And our spirit is saying, yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. I hear that. I understand that. doesn't mean we don't need to convince ourselves of that day in and day out. We need it repeated to us. We need to pray it into our hearts because we tend to forget. We tend to live like orphans. That's how we're going to end the handout today. But uh, this is the, the, the Spirit's desires to make known to you your truest identity. You are children of God. This is fulfilling, the spirit coming is fulfilling the promise of Jesus, who, who, said, I, who said to his disciples, I will come to you. And the promise um, in John 14, 23, we will make our abode with you. Jesus comes to you in the person of his spirit. Jesus physically is at the right hand of the Father right now, somewhere in the universe. He is in a body on the throne of grace, somewhere. I don't think any of us can identify that locale. But when Jesus comes to you to change you, to make his abode with you, he's doing so by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of Jesus. He is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of adoption. So you remember when the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, what words did Jesus hear from his Father? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is receiving right there at the beginning of his ministry, this affirmation from his father. I love you, son. I'm absolutely pleased with you, son. So Jesus receives at the beginning of his ministry, this profound sense of the father's pleasure in him, this assurance. I was just reading in my devotions this morning in Matthew 17, and that records for us the transfiguration. Same words for Jesus from his father. The cloud came, overshadowed Peter, James, and John, and they heard this voice saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Jesus is the greater prophet than Elijah and Moses. He will lead them on a greater exodus than Elijah and than Moses, the exodus of his cross and resurrection. So Jesus hears those words, this is my, my beloved son. The same status is given to those who believe. Remember, the moment you believe, the moment you trust, you are united to Christ so that what is true of Christ is true of you. If Jesus is the beloved son with whom the father is pleased, so are you if you belong to Jesus by faith. The same power is at work in you who know Jesus. The same uh, Holy Spirit power that enabled Jesus to do everything he did in his ministry is at work in us. Remember we said last week, if your Christianity doesn't seem to promise too much, it may, may not be the real thing. The son cried, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. So can we. The son had power by the Spirit, entering the wilderness to withstand temptation. So do we. Same Spirit, same power. The son testified about his Father by the Spirit. So do we. Uh, our testifying ministry to what God is like is ultimately useless unless it is empowered by the Holy Spirit and blessed by the Spirit. The son was assured by the spirit of the father's love. So were we. The son communed in prayer 
with the Father, by the Spirit, so do we. Now let's ask the question, what does it look like when he gives you the spirit of sonship? So let's look at this contrast in John 14, 15 to 18. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Simple test of a true conversion. You know in your heart you love Jesus. It is a love that issues in obedience. You're not saved by that love. You're not saved by that obedience. You're saved by faith. God giving you faith as a gift in your heart. But the reality of that faith always shows itself in new affection for God that issues in a life of obedience. You keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the paraclete, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus is saying that he's going to come to us, right? He's going to be resurrected from the dead, ascend to the Father. He will receive from the Father the promise of the Spirit. He is going to pour out the Spirit at Pentecost. And from then on, he will be saving a people for himself by sending the spirit to regenerate them, to take out their hearts of stones, to give them a heart of flesh, to create in them saving faith. He'll send out his spirit, the spirit who shows us the truth of our sins, who shows us and convinces us the truth and, and the efficacy of the work of Jesus. All the Holy Spirit does all of this. If you have faith, thank the spirit. If you believe in Jesus, thank the spirit. If you've been convicted of your sins, thank the spirit. He is the spirit of truth. He wants to get you the truth, the truth about who God is, the truth about who you are, the truth about salvation. He's a spirit who loves to shine the light on the truth. And boy, does he do a wonderful job at it. But notice what the shift is. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the spirit of adoption obviously contrasts with the spirit that we're naturally born with, which is the spirit of orphanhood. And, uh, and this is cast in terms of slavery. So the, the slave and the orphan, they're synonyms for the same thing. God has come in Christ by his spirit to set us free, to rescue us from the slavery of thinking like and acting like those who are all alone in the world, who are fatherless in the world, who are orphans. So then I think we do well to tease out some contrast between what sons and orphans are like. I want to do this to help you uh, identify in your life where you might be thinking or acting like an orphan. So for example, sons, you're utterly amazed to be adopted into God's family and therefore you want to worship him. So sons and daughters of God never lose, because of the Spirit's work in them, a sense of awe that you are a son or a daughter of the living God. It it's, should take our breath away, shouldn't it? It should cause us to be stunned. It should put us in awe. I've been adopted into God's family, safe, secure, intimacy. I'm not facing God as judge. I'm facing God as a, as a loving, providing father. I want to worship him. An orphan feels 
disconnected and fatherless in this world. And you probably felt that way. You probably woken up one morning and just sensed all alone, felt like God was distant, had no sense of the father, of the father's tender care for you. That's kind of the old orphan spirit testifying in your heart. And that's, uh, you've got to, you got to go, uh, go to war against it because it's, if you belong to Christ, it's simply not true. It's a, it's a counterattack. Sons have a deep assurance of the father's love and therefore they can take risks. They're open to criticism. Hey, the father loves me. How could you possibly hurt me? The father loves me. I can take a risk because I'm going to be rescued. And I mean good risks for the kingdom because God has my back. This, I was reading this morning on Psalm 118. You know, basically, what can man do to me? God's on my side. And we'll see how Paul reasons that same way at the end of Romans 8. Reason from the greater. God Almighty, who possesses all things and has all power, loves me and will provide for me. Therefore, I'm ultimately safe, whatever happens in my life. Orphans, they fear being exposed, being shamed, being rejected. Why? Because you have nothing else. It's just you. And so you're self-protective. I couldn't possibly expose myself. You, If you reject me, then, oh my, I'm all alone in this world. I have nothing. So being controlled by your fears is a sure sign of moving in orphanhoodness rather than sonship. Orphanship, I guess we could say. Sons, you live out of the reality of your new status, reveling in all the rights and privileges of a son or a daughter of God. And some of those rights and privileges are assurance, confidence, rest, Joy, I can pray spontaneously to my father. I don't have to, I, you know, I can burst in wherever my father is in the house. I can burst into the room and say, dad, I need help. I don't need to stand there knocking, wondering if he's interested in my welfare. Christ has purchased the father's un, un, undistracted interest in your welfare. This is why we can pray spontaneously and we live in a spirit of prayer. So, but you've got to revel in that. You've got to think about uh, the rights and privileges of the sons of God. You've got to put them before you. You've got to read the scriptures and ask the spirit to convince you of them again and again and again, because they, when they make an impression on our hearts, we can live in such a way as uh, they, they slip off our hearts. And then we're back to thinking and acting like orphans who feel lost, alone, condemned, needing desperately to find your security and your significance somewhere and you end up becoming a vacuum of self-concern. So if I'm a person, I realize the Holy Spirit convicts me, you just seem all full of yourself. You feel like, Mike, you're just find, trying to find your security and significance in your circumstances, in others, or whatever it is. I'm thinking like an orphan. And Orphans, what, who do they have to care about? Only themselves, right? It's, it's me against the world. And so you end up becoming a vacuum of self-concern. And you can't love other people when you're a vacuum of self-concern. Or you'll treat them in such a way as to man manipulate them to get, you, to get them to give you what you want. That's what orphans do. Sons, they have so much wealth and resources in the gospel. They're free to put their eyes on other people. It's that Philippians 2 teaching of other-centeredness. 
Don't count yourself more important than others. Esteem others more highly than yourselves. Who can do that? Sons of God, not orphans. Orphans have to be self-protective, self-promoting, self-advancing. A vacuum of self-concern. Sons, you delight to live for the glory of the Father, by the Holy Spirit in you, that same spirit that's crying out, Abba, Father, has a way of making the Father's glories known to you. And, and you want to live for that glory. You want to, you want to bring pleasure to the Father. What motivates us to sin? Bringing pleasure to ourselves. What would, call, what would lead us to repentance? Oh, Father, it is so much better to bring delight to your heart than to indulge any sin. So that's a way you can pray for your heart. Give me more and more, Father, an appetite to bring you glory, to live for your glory, to sense the pleasure of delighting your heart with the way I speak, with the way I give, with the way I pray, with the way I serve, with the way I work, with the way I play, whatever it is. We want to, uh, this increasing sense of delight living for the glory of the Father. Orphans feel empty because they are living for inferior glories. Anything you live for, anything you attach ultimate meaning and value to, that's a glory. If it is not ultimately the glory of God, it's going to leave you feeling empty because it's inferior. It was never designed to satisfy you. It, will, it can never deliver you from emptiness. In fact, it becomes, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it will enslave you, will demand more of you, but never satisfy you. So we want to become addicted to being satisfied with bringing joy to the heart of the Father for the sake of the Son. Sons, rest in the worth of Jesus as their worth. They rest in the worth of Jesus as their worth versus orphans have something to prove. So if, if you show me somebody who seems desperately needing to prove that they are competent, to prove that they're likable, to prove that they, that they should be uh, esteemed, whatever it is, you, you can, sometimes can tell a person who has something to prove it's likely they are not resting in the worth they have in Jesus. I mean, if Jesus Christ has clothed you in his righteousness, Jesus Christ calls you brother, Jesus Christ has filled you with the spirit of adoption, Jesus Christ has given you bold and free access to the throne of grace, Jesus Christ has endowed you with the same power to fight temptation as he had, you're really very well off. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to lose. Orphans, are scrambling to try to establish themselves through what they do. And that can be a very difficult person to, to live around. Sons, a rich son has everything guaranteed. You're an heir. You're living as if you're deeply cherished. You will be provided for. You have nothing to lose, everything to give away. And I'm free to not need anything. So I'm delivered from greed. I'm delivered from materialism. I'm delivered from being stingy. I'm delivered from fretting day in and day out. Uh, how's, my, how's my bank account? How's, how's my retirement account? Those aren't bad things to be concerned about. Of course, we need our physical needs met. One of the means by which God meets our needs is we work, we save, we invest. Those are all fine things. But th that is not where our security is. Our security, our hope is in uh, Christ who has secured that for us, who is waiting for us, who's in whose house there are many rooms, and he's going to prepare the whole earth for his people. 
You see those beautiful pictures of the city of God in Revelation. Orphans tend to be greedy and possessive. So show me someone who understands uh, rich patterns of generous giving as a Christian, sacrificial giving. You're looking at probably a son or a daughter of God who is relishing what they have in Christ. Sons, they trust the Spirit's power, and that allows them to, 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 to take more risks for the kingdom than not. Orphans, because they lack spiritual power, they become unmotivated to witness, to, to venture beyond uh, what they deem are safe confines in which to live. So show me a person who is who's just really, really interested in making God known, really seeking the welfare of other people and to talk to them about Christ and making Christ known. You're probably looking at someone in whom the spirit of sonship is empowering them and giving them grace to look outside of themselves to the welfare of others and to make Jesus known by the spirit. Sons keep things in perspective. They already have everything they truly need. My father loves me. He cares for me. He provides for me. He protects me. He approves of me. Even they don't deserve it. <laughs> this is the gospel. So I can keep everything in perspective. I think I was talking to Chris this morning in the office, and uh, we've installed a new printer here, and I asked her how it was going, and she said, well, I've still got more work to do on and figuring out how a couple of things work. And she said, but that's a first world problem. There you go. That's keeping things in perspective. Orphans. When you don't get your way, your way, you panic because your whole world depends on it. No wonder you're fearful. So orphans are fearful. They tend to panic. They tend to manipulate people. Um, uh, yeah, they they uh, have excessive fears. All right, let's let's wrap this up and conclude it by looking at just uh, sort of summarize this characteristics of orphan living and why am I doing this? because I want to give you markers. I want to give you evidence for when you're thinking like an orphan, just because we are sons of God doesn't mean we're thinking like it or acting like it. This is why Paul's writing this. He's assuring us, God sent the spirit of his son to you. This is what you can expect the spirit to do. We don't do this perfectly. And so we want some indicators of, of being um, controlled by the spirit of sonship. And, and we can identify what those are in contrast to the spirit of orphanhood. So orphans feel alone, they're a vacuum of self-concern. Orphans feel the need to look good and they fear rejection. Orphans are defensive, they're not very teachable, self-protective, guarded. Again, understandably, right? All you have in the world is you, so you've got to protect it versus in the world, I have all of God. That's a very, very different way of, uh, of approaching problems and difficult situations. Orphans lack spiritual power. Orphans feel guilty and unworthy. Now, there's nothing wrong with being convicted. If you're convicted of sin and you are, the spirit shows you you are guilty of breaking God's law, that's fine. That's the spirit's work. But he never has an accompanying word with convicting sin that you are unworthy. That, that's, that's from the devil. The devil wants you to feel unworthy. He's the most hateful person in the universe, and he wants you to feel uh, under condemnation and under that hate. 
If you're convicted and you're guilty of sin, you go to Jesus and you find your worth in Jesus, not in your performance. In fact, think of it this way. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, it's because he wants to make you more like Jesus, but convicting you of sin is turning your focus to all the benefits and glories that you have in the risen Christ, salvation, acceptance, reconciliation, cleansing. The Spirit wants to equally show you that was sin, but here's the answer to that sin. It's what you have in Jesus. Orphans are ungrateful. Uh, Orphans, number seven, compare themselves to others. So think of the story of the Pharisee and the publican, Luke 18. The Pharisee is clearly an orphan. All he has is his own record. I thank God that I'm not like other people. So he is finding his righteousness. He's finding a sense of well-being by comparing himself to bad people. He feels superior. And according to the parable, Jesus says, he trusted in his own righteousness and viewed others with contempt. So if you find in your spirit, you are viewing somebody else who, let's just say objectively, they are worse off than you, worse than you. They, they failed where you didn't. Objectively, that's the case. And you're feeling contempt towards them instead of compassion. That's a spirit of orphanhood. Yeah. True sons and daughters, when they see other broken people, they're compassionate because they know that would be them, uh, but for the spirit of God. They would be a mess, but for the spirit of God. Right? So cheer up. You're a whole lot worse than you know, and but for Jesus, you'd be worse than you can imagine. So the uh, Pharisee there in that, in that um, story is, is clearly living and thinking and acting and treating others like an orphan. You have something to prove. So when you can't, uh, let's see, so eight, you have something to prove. You want others to know you're competent, knowledgeable, likable, skilled, successful. And when you can't find validation, see, you're desperately trying to find your validation from other people or from your performance, and then you make a bunch of excuses why. Other people failed me. It's their fault. So people who can take responsibility for their own failures, for their own sins, that's much more of a son than an orphan. Orphans panic when they don't get their own way. Orphans are fearful. So this is the spirit of fear that Paul refers to in Romans 8. Jesus refers to there in the John 14 passage. God doesn't want you living in fear. Look, if he's your father, there's nothing to fear. It's interesting how many times in the Gospels, Jesus is saying to his disciples, fear not, fear not. There they are on the Sea of Galilee, the boat's swamped. Jesus is asleep. He's taking a nap in the back of the boat. I mean, from a human perspective, it looks like they're going to drown They finally wake up Jesus. He calms the wind and the sea. Everything's fine. And he says, why were you afraid? I'm with you. Reason from the greater to the lesser. If God is with me, if Jesus is on my side, if almighty God is my heavenly father, I have nothing to fear. That's why that's one of the blessings, the powerful existential blessings of the gospel is rightly thought, rightly embraced, rightly controlling our hearts, it should deliver us from our fears. Well, there we go. There are some thoughts for you on the spirit of adoption. Contrast that to the spirit of orphanhood. We can help each other identify when we're thinking and acting like orphans. 
and uh, we have this privilege of showing one another and other people who are not in the kingdom what the sons and daughters of God, how they live, how they think, how they speak, and how they act. So may I get a few more minutes this morning? We didn't quite use all our time, but I thank you for your attention. I look forward to joining you, Lord willing, next Sunday, November 8th, in person. You all have a wonderful worship service. David Miner will be preaching on Sola Fide, since today is uh, Reformation Day, November 1st. Thank you. We will see you next time.